2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 15. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning we um, continue our series. We've been, um, we're spending this month just, uh, I guess, recalibrating ourselves as a church after winter. Well, it's kind of winter still, but it wasn't winter last Sunday, but it's winter today. Um, calibrating ourselves for the end of the year and even the run into next year. And as I said to you last week, this is our vision um, statement as a church. We long to be a church made beautiful, diverse and large by the gracious work of Christ. I mean, this is, this is a, a summary really of the biblical picture of God's church in Revelation. And so we're not saying anything unusual there in many ways. Uh, one, of the, one of the things as a church we've said is though that uh, you know, for us to take steps towards this, some of the, the characteristics we want to see repeating in the life of our church is praying, bringing, growing, and celebrating together. And we're really thinking about that fourth characteristic, celebrating together for the glory of Christ. I said to us last week, this is really ultimately a, a desire for us to experience and reflect the compelling community that God has painted and desires for his people. What does it look like to be that? and then to put that into practice. This is our desire. Because we feel like as, as we take steps towards the vision of God's church, one of them is, one of those steps must be a compelling experience of community. Last week, I said to you that the first, and, and I've, we've been following these images, we're going to follow images of, of what the church looks like in the New Testament. The different New Testament writers use images to capture the church. And last week was the image of the family of God. I was reminded of a church I used to be part of where their catchphrase is the church is made of people. And we said last week that the family of God, that image, leaves us with the clear and implicit direction to be people who love one another. This is captured in the one another language of the New Testament. 
And to be honest, in our society, which is generally devoid of deep, meaningful relationships and connections, that's not a hard thing to hear, to be encouraged to love one another. And, and I challenged you that the place, one of the main places for that was in the context of our gap groups, but also um, we're seeking to establish a care committee and there is a meeting for that on the 20th and the details are in the booklet if you want to know more about that. But today I want to shift to the next image that we find of the church and God's people and actually it's found in um, Paul's letter to the Corinthians but not this second letter that was just read to us but the first letter. It's a little offhand um, reference but here it is. Paul says in the first letter we are co-workers in God's service and you, the church, the Corinthian church specifically he's speaking to but the church more broadly are God's field and God's building talk about the second image later in the series but I do want to talk about this image of God as God's church as God's field it's a it's a one-off reference here in Paul's le first letter to the Corinthians but I think it actually reflects a trend that we see in the New Testament because Jesus uses agricultural imagery um, regularly actually in his teachings to help um, the disciples and the crowd understand more about the kingdom about God's people in this world uh, so famously he talks about the parable of the sower uh, and the different soils and finishes with this this um, this image of of a, a harvest that produced 30 60 or 100 fold this vision of the kingdom of God of God's people um, in doubling multiplying uh, another example he uses is the the parable of he says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of seeds, when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds may come and perch in its branches. So here again, we see this imagery, this agricultural imagery, this image of a field, of things being planted, of things growing. And this is, the this is one of the key images that God uses in the New Testament to help us understands some of the characteristics of his kingdom that he's bringing about, of his people that he's establishing. Now why does Paul, picking up Jesus' language, why do, they, why do they use this image of the field? What, what's behind it? It's been winter and our garden is looking particularly drab and grey. I don't we were spoilt last year, we don't say this often, but we were spoilt with the amount of rain we had last year. We didn't have to do anything. Everything just grew and it was all luscious and green. But our grass looks a bit grey and drab. Our trees look a bit limp. And um, probably most emblematic of the state of our garden is our planter bed. Um, here it is. Yeah. Looks good, doesn't it? I particularly like how it's so dry that the soil has shrunk away from the edges there's lots of potential there, isn't there? Now, it's Harriet's planter bed. She doesn't care. But uh, I looked at it the other day. I thought, that is terrible. That's a sign of how much work we've done in the garden. What's terrible about it is because, of course, you, you put something down like that. You, you, you lay a, a field, you, you plant a field of, of crop, and it's established for the purpose of growing. Right? If it's not growing, there's something wrong with it. And in a sense, Jesus, in his use of this imagery, and again, Paul here, is using the image of field, is using this agricultural image to say that 
the church is meant to grow. It's established to grow. Now, we feel a bit sheepish about that. But this is very, I think this is very true, especially in, um, in Western churches. There's a sheepishness to expect the church to grow. Like, we, we almost feel like it's too much tied to power structures now. So if it grows, that, that feels... That feels out of line with the gospel, which is all about weakness and, and suffering in the life of Christ. But actually, the imagery Jesus uses of his church and of his kingdom is imagery that constantly encourages us to see growth. What do we mean by growth? Well, I think the Bible mean, has kind of a multifaceted view of the growth of God's people. In Acts chapter 2, after Paul preaches his sermon on Pentecost, we get a little glimpse of the early church. It's kind of, I think it's kind of paradigmatic, actually. It's a, it's a bit of, a, 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 it's a, bit of a, a model of what I think God is hoping he'll see in his church as it grows throughout the story of Acts. We could have used that, in fact, as the basis of this series, but we didn't. But through it, we see a couple of hints at what growth looks like. I haven't quoted the whole passage, but here I have visually tried to capture it. So first of all, we hear that they're devoted to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. There's a sense in which growth is spiritual. They, have, they grow in their love for who God is and what he said and for praying, for talking to him. There's a growth in their relationship with God. So there's, a, there's a kind of this upward growth, so to speak. Uh, we're told that they share with those in need. There's a picture of a community that's drawing closer together, that, that is investing internally in each other. And I think this is very much the kind of picking up, uh, picked up again in the language we talked about last week, about loving one another. There's a tightening and a deepening and a strengthening of those internal relationships. But also they added, the Lord added to their number, we're told. And so there's a growth Outwardly, numerically, the church is numerically growing. I mean, that's, that is the constant repeating, repeating theme of the early chapters of Acts is the Lord constantly adding to the number of people. And so we see that growth is this kind of three-dimensional thing of internal spiritual growth, of relational growth, and of numerical growth. And I want to say, I think that should be our expectation of God's church over the course of time. Now, of course, we cast our mind back to the parable of the sower, and we have 30, 60, 100. The types of growth, the level of growth is, is varied. It, it doesn't, doesn't mean it will be extraordinary exponential growth at times, and it may be that the growth occurs in one area more than the other, but we should have an expectation picking up the language of the New Testament, that God's church would grow, would grow. And if that's not your expectation, I just want you to probe why that might be. Do you, do you have an inbuilt cynicism about the power of the gospel and about the pervasiveness of the kingdom of God and God's purposes? Do you have a certain sense of unbelief about the capacity of God to work in this world? Do you think that the, the social pressures of this world are this perhaps too much for God? And if you do, I want to ask you to repent of that. The kingdom of God is established to grow. The question, of course, is how does it grow? And I think 
it is, it is a common theme in the Bible that it grows as the gospel goes out because the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all. That is how people are saved, right? It's the proclamation of this great, extraordinary message of what Jesus has done. That is the central, most powerful, primary means of growth. But interestingly, it's not the only means of growth. There are other means, which I think you'd say are secondary, but I think there are other ways that God grows his church. And we pick one of them up actually here in 2 Corinthians. Paul uses the, the kind of agricultural language again in this passage. See what he says? He says, whoever sows sparingly, he's picking up the, 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 grow, the, 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 the agricultural language. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. Paul says the church grows by giving away what's most valuable to it. One of the ways the church grows is actually by giving away, by generosity. This is counterintuitive to us because we think you normally grow by, by drawing it in close to you, by, by hoarding it up, right? But the dynamic of the gospel, the, the, the encouragement of the Bible is that God's people and God's church grow when they grow in the skill and the characteristics and the task of generosity, of giving away. A healthy life together is marked by decisions to give away what is most, most valuable. And actually, before this, this little section of verses which was read to us from 2 Corinthians 9, in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul gives us the great example of the Macedonians who, though poor, gave generously. And he does this because he sees that generosity is one of the ways that God cultivates growth in his church. One of the ways he grows his church. Now, why is it that God might use generosity as a way of growing his church? Why does he, why does he use that? Well, Paul gives us a couple of reasons in this. Let me pick up some of them. First of all, in verse 12, he says, quite simply, it supplies the needs of the Lord's people. You know, you, you look around and you see people are in need. How is God going to meet the needs of his church? Through the generosity of his church. That's it. We might like to think God will meet the needs of his church through kind of some kind of supernatural, spectacular intervention. But actually, the pattern is that God works through these ordinary means of the generosity of his people meeting the needs. In fact, Paul is spending his time uh, for about two years, actually. This, this, this book, 2 Corinthians, is part of a period in his ministry. He spends about two years traveling East Asia fundraising for those who are in need in Jerusalem as a result of a great famine. You know, we think of Paul as someone who's a great preacher of the gospel, and of course he is, that's, that's the thing that Luke focuses on primarily. But bubbling away through the story of this part of Luke is Paul travelling from city to city, from church to church, encouraging them to be generous, to be generous because there is a great need in Jerusalem as a result of a famine. And Paul sees this as one of the key tasks. This is how God is going to meet the needs of the people in Jerusalem through the generosity of his people throughout East Asia. It's not unusual, actually, the story of Acts. You might think, why are we majoring so much money? But the, 
The book of Acts talks about money. In Acts 2, Acts 4, Acts 6, money is at the centre of the life of God's people in those early stages. You know, Acts 2, they get together, what do they do? They share their needs with anyone who's in need. This is the hallmark of the early church. Acts 6, two people who give a lot of money, but they give it deceptively, end up being judged by God as a result of it in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. See, the way we handle money, the way we give it away is a symbol. It's symptomatic of the health of God's fellowship, the God's church. And so generosity is this great hallmark of togetherness. And it's important because it actually meets the needs of God's people. You know, we have seven link missionaries or mission organisations which our church gives to every year. This year, at the end of this month, of um, Vision Month, is our mission gift day. It's our opportunity to give off one-off gifts to these people. When you do that, that is meeting their needs. We heard about David Blackman last week. David is a single um, dad who lived in central, lives in Central Australia. He's been ministering to a small group of Indigenous people, the Alawa people, translating the Bible into their language. Now, we've supported him for many years. Our support seems kind of unremarkable, but it's what puts food on his table. It's what's clothed him. It's what's allowed him to send his children to school. That happens because of the partnership of God's people. We support a lady called Kylie Zeech who works in Johannesburg Bible College with CMS. She's a single lady in, in South Africa. Our ministry, along with the ministry of other churches and supporting her financially and being generous towards her, allows her to exercise such a great ministry. She, she reaches a large part of the continent because she ministers to women who then go back into their villages and, and bring the gospel to their village. That's part of her ministry. Now, those things can't happen unless... There is generosity from God's people to allow those people to do it. There's this partnership. It's not unusual. This is a picture of William Tyndale. You might have heard of him because you might have read a version of the Bible called the Tyndale Bible. William Tyndale is an Englishman, lived in the 1500s. And one night he's in, he's been, he has a heart for translating the Bible from Latin into English. In other words, from a language which pretty much the majority of people could not read into a language which the ordinary person in England could read. But no one will... He has nowhere to live. He has nowhere to... He, he, can't, he just has nowhere literally to live. And he's been approaching wealthy people to ask them to put him up. No one will. Eventually he meets a guy called Henry Monmouth, who is a um, very wealthy merchant in England. He's also a Christian. And he hears his story and he says to Monmouth, from Oxford to London, from country chapels to city churches, I've seen that men are ignorant of God's word. And this deep conviction of Tyndale is transferred to Monmouth. And Monmouth is so moved by this, he says, I will be your patron. I will look after you. And so till his death, Monmouth supports his ministry in order that Tyndale can translate the Bible from Latin into English so that ordinary women and men in England in the 1500s can finally read the great news of Jesus. This is the pattern that we see repeatedly. See, we think that the church grows through preachers, but the story of the Bible and the story of the early church is this unique and wonderful partnership between preachers and patrons. 
Right? Yes, it is the word of God that goes out, but God in his great kindness has said it's not just the person, the woman or the man who stands up and declares the word of God, but it is the partnership between God's people. You think this is not true? There's a great moment in Luke 8 where this is where you find the parable of the sower, which is all about the word of God and it resulting in growth, right? But just before Jesus teaches the parable of the sower, Luke tells us that Jesus is traveling and the way that he's enabled, he and his disciples are able to travel is because of the ministry of Susanna, Joanna, and other women who support their life and ministry. You don't get the parable of the sower without the ministry of Susanna and Joanna and those other women. There's a patronage, there's an opportunity to meet the needs of the Lord's people. And what's more, Luke, uh, Paul also says, and in their prayers for you, their hearts will go. He's saying, and in the, the prayers of the, of the people of Jerusalem who you're supporting will go out to you. In other words, you have given to them materially, but they are now bound to you spiritually and relationally, wonderfully so. He says, your generosity binds you to these people. See, generosity binds God's people together. It's not just that it meets their kind of pragmatic, practical needs. It binds them together in unique and wonderful ways. This may have been your own experience. I, I, I support a, a kid's ministry. We, we send, uh, not I, our family supports a kid's ministry. And um, when, whenever they send us the, the receipt back, there's a, a little note written from the, the CEO of the organisation to us saying thanks. And it's wonderful. They're praying for us. They ask us for prayer points. They pray for us. They are bound to us and we are bound to them. Our generosity binds us to us in this task together. One author says generosity enriches the community by drawing us into partnership with one another. In a sense, that's partly what Paul is encouraging. He says one of the reasons the church grows is not just because suddenly it has all these practical needs which are met by the generosity, but relationally by sharing their needs together, they are bound more closely together. See, you belong to the church because of Jesus. Objectively, that's what brings you in. That's what gets you at the centre, right? what Jesus has done for you. But there are ways that you can live and act which will give you a greater experience of that belonging. And one of those is sharing with one another, being generous with one another. I know we all love to be told about the objective truth, but we want the experience that we say is objectively true of us, don't we? We want to really experience belonging. And the, the means of generosity is one way of experiencing that unique and deep and wonderful partnership with others as you share with them or as you go together as a group to share your goods with others. It's a wonderful experience. Now the question though is what brings about this generosity? What brings about this generosity? It's not actually how much you have. It's not whether God has given you enough so you might be generous. There's a great story in the New Testament where Jesus is talking to the disciples. He looks over, he sees all these wealthy people coming to the temple and giving. And then he sees a poor woman come, Mark 12. And she puts in a little, little copper coin. It's worth not much. But Jesus looks at her and says, that's the kind of person you should be like. Like her. Because she gave out of her poverty. She gave all that she had. 
It's the same example that we saw in the Macedonians in the previous chapter in 2 Corinthians 8. See, it's what enables generosity is not the size of your bank account. I think some of us think, oh, it's if I have a lot of stuff, then I can be generous. But Jesus is saying generosity, the heart of generosity, whether it's with our time, whether it's with our energy, whether it's with our material possessions, doesn't come because you've got a big bank account. It actually comes from somewhere else. Look at what Paul says. He says, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. See, you're generous because of God. God is the one who makes you generous. See, he, he blesses you with abundantly so that you at all times and in every place can be generous. God is the one who gives you all that you need. And because of his generosity, you can be generous. It's Father's Day coming up. This is a, this is a terrible, terrible holiday because it's meant to be generous, but it's just marked with commercialism. At our school, at our kids' school, they have a Father's Day event. What happens is you can participate in the Father's Day event by logging on and paying $15 for a ticket. Okay, so what normally will happen is my wife Emily, she will log on, she'll buy me my Father's Day gift online. Uh, Then we'll turn up to school on on the morning before Father's Day or the Friday before Father's Day and uh, I'll have my little printed out ticket which my wife has bought for me um, my kids will present that. And the ticket in, entitles you to, you know, a bacon and egg roll and a coffee and a gift. But what really happens is you turn up, as I've found now, and now I have two kids at school this year, so this should be interesting. You hand in the thing and then your kid says to you, oh, I really want that bacon and egg roll. So there goes the bacon and egg roll. And then you go over to the coffee station and they say, oh, we've run out of coffee. Do you like a tea? So, okay. We've run out of milk. It'll be black. And then, then your child goes to the table with all the gifts, aka the cheapest thing you can find at Kmart, and they choose something they like. And then they give it to you knowing that in a couple of hours it'll be on the kitchen table and it's free dibs. And they've been generous to you. And you think, well, that's not generosity. Surely. I mean, they didn't pay it, pay for it. They had none of the means for it, and they ended up consuming pretty much all of it. Here's the thing. That's the kind of generosity God is offering. He says, he says come to me, and you can, have, you can have all of it. I don't care. I'll give you the whole gift, and you can have it. He says, give me 10%. You can keep the remaining 90%. You can have the bacon and egg roll. You can have the gift. God pours himself out richly and abundantly. He provides everything, all that you need at all times, so the scriptures, repeatedly. And he's okay. He's okay with you enjoying all these good gifts. He's okay with that. He's okay with, with you indulging yourself in the good things he's given you. Because God's great heart is generosity. He longs to give, not receive. You, you think he's unhappy if, 
with you because you only gave him 7%. He doesn't need your 7%. He just wants to give you stuff. This is God's great heart. In fact, in the chapter before, here's what Paul says about... Sorry, here's the chapter that... Uh, here's what Paul says. There we go. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is who God is. He gives what is... He looks around. He says, What is the most valuable thing I have? Oh, it's my son. I'll give him up for you. Because that's how God is. His heart, he longs to be generous to you. And that's the starting point for your generosity. A deeper appreciation that God is most pleased when he can give to you. In fact, you can never outgive God. You think you're giving a lot to God? He's given you immeasurably more because everything you're giving to him, he already owned. It was already his. He'd already paid for it. And his great gift to you is far more than material prosperity. His great gift to you is the deep assurance that he loves you, that he treasures you, that you are, in fact, the most precious thing that he has. His deep, assurance, his deep gift to you is your assurance that you will be safe with him. You'll be cared for by him. And when you come before him on the last day, he will welcome you home. God loves you. He is generous to you. And the more you grasp that, the more God's church grasps the generosity of God to them, it will, it will a, free us to let go of stuff because we know whatever we send back, whatever we pour out, God is able and does replace abundantly. But even more, we understand that when we're generous, we start to walk and live a bit more like Jesus. We start to be a bit more like Jesus who gave himself for us. And after all, that's what we want, isn't it? We want to be like Jesus. We want to be beautiful, marked by Christ. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank, you for, we thank you for all your gifts so freely given to us, especially the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus, the most valuable and precious thing you have, you gave up in order to redeem us, to pour out your love upon us and to welcome us home. Lord God, would your Holy Spirit so fill us with such a deep understanding and grasp of your love for us that we would be changed too. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.